Welcome to our Wednesday night study of uh, the book of 1 Peter. We're going to continue on in this study in chapter 2. And if you would please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be beginning looking at the first eight verses in the chapter. Last week, we, uh, I'll entitled the message tonight, by the way, A Stone of Stumbling. A Stone of Stumbling. Last week, we noted Peter's classic if-then statement. And it's important that you look for these kind of things in Scripture. As you're reading, you know, you read through Scripture, perhaps it's your personal Bible study or together as a family. Look for phrases for things that kind of stand out. And especially when you see an if-then statement, obviously you want to look, okay, if this is true, what is the first thought? Then, what's the consequence of that thought? Okay? And that classic statement was, if you call on the Father, in other words, if you claim to be a child of God uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, then conduct yourselves according to the days of your life here on earth. Okay, there's that, that sense in which you're, you're brought to the attention of, okay, I claim to be a Christian, how then shall I live? Which is a good question. Well, you should conduct yourself according to the days of your life here on earth in a manner of the gospel, okay? Reflecting Christ to those around you. And note that that sentence that Paul uh, or Peter gives here ends with the words in fear. He uses those words in fear. And of course, it means we are to live our lives in a reverential fear of God, wanting to please him in all that we do. As one commentator said, the Christian should consciously live in the presence of God. And I think I mentioned uh, R.C. Sproul's well-known statement, which has been part of, of Ligonier and uh, part of the, uh, the uh, daily devotional that we get as well. Coram Deo, which is in the face of God, living in the face of God, as though God's looking at you all the time, which he is. So we don't think about that. We live our lives and we claim to be Christians and we study the word of God and we come and hear the word of God preached, but every second of your life, you're in the presence of God. He is looking at you. He is observing you. He knows your thoughts, your desires, your plans, your words. He knows everything. You can't escape God's eye looking upon you as, and he, it's an eye of love, obviously, if you're his child by faith in Christ. It's an eye of love, a compassion. But keep that in mind, that he is always aware of what you're saying, thinking, doing. And therefore, you should live as though you're in the presence of God, as though you were standing next to Christ, let's say, and he was observing everything you did. That's where you should live. That's how we should live as Christians. So we cannot live carelessly or recklessly, if we, in other words, if we claim to be Christians, but wisely, with the desire to honor him in everything we do and enjoy uninterrupted fellowship with him, too. Because obviously, if we're not living for him, we're not having fellowship with him, we're going to feel his chastisement upon us. So the idea is, if you want the joy of the Lord, then you should be living according to the Lord, and that will bring you joy. Also noted that Peter brought forth three doctrinal points in the latter verses of chapter 1. First is the doctrine of redemption. And as we stated, that term redemption refers to what? The paying of a debt, okay, or a ransom in order to set someone or even something free. uh, Redemption. And we noted silver and gold, though in our eyes and in the eyes of the world, they're precious metals, yet in truth, they're perishable. They don't last forever. And most importantly, they could not then, nor can they now, suffice for the payment of our sins before a holy God. As precious as they may be, God will not accept them as payment for sins. By contrast, We have been redeemed with something far more precious, Peter says, than silver or gold. And that is, as 1 John 1, 7 tells us, it is the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, that cleanses us from all sin. Far more precious. How precious is that blood that washes us white as snow? Hymns have been written about it by the dozens. And we certainly could think of some even tonight to sing. But it is something we should keep on our minds. Without it, we will all be under the eternal wrath of God, without the blood of Christ that takes away our sins. 
Peter's second doctrinal point was that of uh, revelation. God's plan of redemption was not an afterthought, nor was it a reaction to the fall, uh, but instead it was a foreordained plan before he created the world. 1 Timothy 1.9 tells us, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So before time began, God had his plan of redemption in place. Ephesians 1.4 says we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And as we said, we were chosen in the chosen one. Christ is the chosen one. We are chosen in him uh, in eternity. But he was revealed in time. There's that, that picture of him being revealed, the revelation. He was revealed in time according to God's uh, preordained schedule. The most well-known verse, I think, that describes that is Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. When the fullness of time had come, at the right time, the right place, the right nation, the right language, all the right things were in place when Christ came. In the fullness of time, he came. And as we noted, that phrase, by the way, there in the latter part of 1 Peter chapter 1, that in these last times, in these last times, he, in verse 20, refers not just to his birth, but also to his whole life, his passion, as well as his second coming. So that in these times means the whole period of time between Christ's coming and his first coming and his second coming. Christ was revealed in time for one purpose. and We all know what that purpose is, to redeem believers whom God had chosen for him to redeem. And the last doctrinal point that Peter touches on in verse 21 of chapter 1 is that of resurrection. Uh, we ask the question, why is our faith and hope in God? Why do we have a hope in God? Well, it's, it's proved out because God raised Christ from the dead. Jesus didn't just die on the cross and that was it. No, he showed he was the Son of God when God raised him from the dead and took him up into glory to be at the right hand of the Father, showing that he, his, his justification was, was sure, it was true, and accepted by the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, or 15, 17, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. But 1 Corinthians 15, 20 tells us, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. To quote from Gordon Clark, the resurrection provides a solid basis for one confidence, or for our confidence, the glory Christ received assures us that those in Christ will also be glorified. The glory he received is our glory because we are what? We're in him. We serve a risen Savior who intercedes continually before the throne of God for us and thus gives us the assured hope that we shall indeed be kept in him, accepted by God, and eventually glorified with him. There's a wonderful hope that one day we will be glorified with him. And finally, in our last message, uh, we looked at the purifying seed, which is the word of God, and the impact it has on us as a part of the body of Christ. In obedience to the truth, which is God's word, and by the power of the Spirit, we're not only to live in the fear of God, but we are to love the brethren. That kind of takes us back to our lessons there on uh, spiritual gifts. Not superficially either, because Peter says we're to love them fervently with a pure heart. So we don't just take kind of a casual approach or a token approach to loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to love them fervently. We're to care about them. And, of course, that manifests itself in different spiritual gifts, doesn't it? As we discussed, gifts of mercy, gifts of help and discernment and other things. Those are the kind of gifts that you'll want to manifest towards blessing and edifying your fellow believers. And that's part of, of our spiritual life as well. Excuse me. Um, we pointed out many times, and I think I've, I've tried to emphasize it not only in spiritual gifts, but in other lessons as well, 
If we study the scriptures with an open mind and a spirit-led eye, we should continually see as we go through the scriptures, continually see this theme of the two great commandments set before us. We are to love and obey God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength, and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that's manifested here. The way to purify ourselves is to humble, is to humble ourselves in obedience to God with the desire to pleasing the God of that word and to please our neighbors as well, to love and serve our neighbors. So at the end of chapter 1, Peter contrasts the frailty, if you note there, he contrasts the frailty and the temporal nature, nature of the flesh with the eternal, the enduring nature of God's word by quoting from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. And uh, as I mentioned, he'll do a lot of quoting from Isaiah. That's one of his favorite books, as we'll see. He points out in verse 25, this same word, by which we mean the Old Testament and the New Testament, this message of redemption that was preached to Old Testament saints is also preached in the message of the gospel. And with that as a foundation, with that as the basis here of our lesson, he will exhort us further here in chapter 2 to be sure our salvation is founded upon the living word, which is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our sec first point, you might say, for today as we look at this beginning of this chapter, and we'll look at the first three verses, is desiring sincere spiritual nourishment. Desiring sincere spiritual nourishment. And we note again here the use of the word therefore, and some of your verses might have wherefore, but very important. And again, just like when you see an if-then, anytime you see the word therefore or wherefore, indicates a conclusion based upon certain facts. What are those facts? Okay, that's what we need to look for. Let's read verses 1 through 3 of our text, 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, evil, all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. We'll stop right there. If indeed, if you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. Just as God, our creator, supplies us with physical nourishment, when we are baby, via our mothers, uh, that we may grow thereby, he also supplies us with spiritual nourishment via his word. And Peter continues his analogy here of the new birth, as he began in chapter 1. If we indeed are in Christ, then we should lay aside all these evil habits that were a part of our sinful nature. We're to lay them aside. We're laying aside these evil garments as a desire to get rid of them, not to put them off temporarily and then put them back on. No, we want to get rid of them. It's like you're wearing filthy garments, you want to get rid of them completely. You don't want to get them back. You're not going to try and fix them up or wash them. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, to put off, put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on, put on the new man which is created according to God in sure righteousness and holiness. So we see that picture of putting off something that is negative, putting on the positive, putting on the righteousness of Christ. In fact, one commentator said this, filthy habits do not become the children of God. They are marks of an unrenewed mind. Someone who claims to be a Christian and continues in filthy habits, continues in worldly sinful habits, obviously doesn't really know the Lord Jesus Christ because there should be a change. You should be putting off the old, putting on the new. Obviously, it's a battle. We understand we're still in the flesh. But there should be that definitive mark in which you are, you're, you're putting it off. You're constantly putting off these evil things, putting on righteousness, desiring to grow in the wisdom and knowledge of the Lord. In fact, here in the text, we see we are to desire, note, we are to desire 
the true or the pure milk of the word. We're to desire the pure milk of the word. The Greek word for desire here is epipothimo, and it means to intensely crave. Not just say, oh, I kind of like that. You know, it's, it, it's interesting to me or it kind of appeals to me. No, it's an intense craving, a desire, or to long after something, to really want something, more so than just kind of a casual interest. And as we all know, a hungry baby can make quite a racket, can let you know for sure, uh, when they desire to have some milk when they're hungry. Well, we should have a desire, an intense desire, craving for the Word of God. We should hunger for the Word of God. It should not be an option to us because we want to grow in grace. We want to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as Peter will tell us in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. So what kind of impact can the Word of God have in a life? Well, I'm sure many of us could testify in our own lives what, what impact the Word of God has had with us. But we can look in Scripture and we can see the impact that the Word of God had on David, on Saul of Tarsus, and many others. In fact, David very eloquently uh, expresses it in Psalm chapter 19. Let's go back to Psalm chapter 19, and we'll just look at verses 7 through 11. You probably are familiar, familiar with this. In fact, we've sung it as a chorus, uh, as a song, in many uh, instances as a family, and you may have as well. Psalm 19, verse 7 through 11. Note how David shows the importance of the word of God in his life. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. There's that comparison, the word of God, to something uh, less, less valuable, at least from our perspective, from the world's perspective, they say, well, gold's very valuable, but more desire should God's word be than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is a great reward. The value of keeping the word of God and making it a part of your life. John MacArthur said this, spiritual growth is always marked, always marked by a craving for and a delight in God's word. So what about you and I, beloved? Do we have a craving for, a delight in the Word of God? Is it just something we use because we come to church and we study it periodically because it makes us feel good? Or do we have a desire to know that Word, to make it a part of our life, to put on the principles and truth that are in that Word, that we might live a life that is righteous and godly? Do we hunger and thirst for the Word of God? And as a result, do we grow more and more in love with the God of that Word? See the, the results of that? If you hunger and thirst for the Word of God, that it should result in you having a greater love for the God of that word. You desire to be more like him and more in fellowship with him. Or do we take it or leave it? That's again, the contrast is, are we taking or leaving it and therefore having kind of an indifferent? If we do, it may be an indication we're spiritually stunted or maybe not even a believer at all. Now, as we see here in verse 3, essentially it's challenging us to consider whether we are truly in Christ if we have in fact, notice, tasted tasted the grace of our gracious and merciful God. Although it's somewhat in reverse, we have what we call another if-then statement here. He says, if you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, then it should be incentive for you to long after deeper draughts of this grace and bigger portions of his heavenly manna. So another if-then statement, only kind of in, in reverse here. This is a little bit different, but it's if you've tasted that the Lord is good, then this should be your life. Psalm 34 and verse 8 tells us, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. 
If God has by his grace drawn you to himself and granted you repentance and faith in Christ, then you should not rest satisfied with that beginning step of faith, but rather seek a closer relationship with him and hunger after communion with him, desire to be more in his presence, desire to know more of him. So be sure you have done more than just tasted, though. Do a little bit more than just tasted. You want to dive in. You want to have a feast. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll look at verses, oh, let's see, six through, um, six, 4 through 8. I'm sorry, 4 through 8. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. <clears throat> Excuse me. And note the words here. It's not a, oh, it's a matter of opinion. No, it is impossible. For it is impossible, verse 4, for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and of the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those who by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So the true work of God's grace will bring forth fruit, is what we're, we're seeing here. But those who claim to be his, perhaps even our faithful church attendees, maybe even in a position of authority in the church, yet have not, as have, have not uh, I guess, as Christ uh, put it, eaten of his flesh, in other words, feasted upon him, will end up in turning out to be enemies of the cross rather than followers of the cross. John 6.51, I am Jesus. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. He gave his all. He gave his flesh for our sins to justify us we should be giving our all for him. We should be hungering after him. We should be feasting upon Lord Jesus Christ, not just tasting him and kind of going away saying, well, that was nice. No, we should be feasting upon him, making him a part of our life. Which takes us into our second part of the text here in verses 4 and 5. We'll call this a spiritual house made of a living stone and lively stones. A spiritual house made of a living stone and lively stones. Yeah, I love the fact that Peter, in his, his epistles here, uses some wonderful imageries, wonderful imageries to get his message across. He now changes to the image of uh, building a house to teach his readers, again, the preciousness of our Savior. Let's read verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. We'll stop there, and you'll note verse 6 begins with a therefore. So we need to pay attention to verses 4 and 5, because it's going to say, therefore, do something. Okay, so what is verses 4 and 5 about? First of all, a living stone. Sounds kind of contradictory. It's kind of hard to see a stone that is alive, right? It's, it's, it's dead. It's, there's no life in it in that sense. But as someone said, it is both a metaphor and a paradox. Stones don't live, yet neither do men rise from the dead. At least normally they don't, right? They normally don't rise from the dead. Peter's using this metaphor uh, of using really some metaphorical verses from the Old Testament, as we'll see here when we get to verses 6 and 8, to point out that Christ is both the cornerstone of God's house, of spiritual house, and a stone of stumbling to unbelievers. See the contrast? He's a cornerstone in one sense, the 
the important point of the, of the building of the house, and on the contrast, he is a stumbling block to those who don't believe. The Greek word here in verse 4 for coming, okay, when we say, look at our text, coming to him as to a living stone, has the meaning of coming and staying, not just coming and then passing on uh, or you know, paying a little attention to it, coming and staying, clinging to it. We come to Christ not for a quick fix and then go on our way, but we come to him for cleansing, we come to him for forgiveness, and we cling to him for continual cleansing and for the grace to live for him. We're built up in him. We also come to him with the assurance that we shall not be cast out, as he said in John 6, 37. So those are things we need to, to, to lay hold of and, and be uh, aware of and be thankful for, that we're built up in him and we are sanctified in him and we are kept by him. We will not be cast out. As Peter states here, Christ was rejected by men, which is an echo, by the way, of Isaiah 53 and verse 3, but chosen by God, which is a thought taken out of Isaiah 42 and verse 1. And we see the contrast of the verbs here, rejected and chosen, rejected and chosen, and the nouns, men and God, men and God. This was a constant theme in Peter's sermons in the book of Acts, and we'll not look them all up right now. I'll just give them to you. You can write them down and look them up. But this is part of his themes, constantly contrasting men and God, rejected and chosen. You'll find it in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36, Acts 2, 22 to 36, Acts 3, these are all Peter's sermons, Acts 3, 13 through 15, Acts 4, verses 10 and 11, and Acts 10, verses 39 through 42. And I, you can look those up later and, and get the, the picture here of Peter constantly using this, this contrast. Um, we're chosen in Christ, and therefore we should expect the same rejection by men who rejected him. He is the living stone, and we are what? What does the text say? We are living stones. He is also what? The living water in John chapter 4 and verses 10 through 14. He is the living bread, John chapter 6, verse 51. The living way, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20. And in him we live and move and have our beings, as Paul said in Acts chapter 17 and verse 28. Without him, we're dead in trespasses and sins, as we all know. And yet if we believe in him, we shall live eternally. John eleven twenty five. 25, I am the resurrection and life, Jesus speaking here. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. That's the promise we have. We also see at the end of verse 4 in our text that not only was he, Christ, chosen by God the Father to fulfill this plan of redemption, but he was also precious to him. The Trinity is not just this abstract group of, of, of supreme beings getting together. There's a preciousness. There's a love within the Trinity. They each value each other. And Christ was precious in the sight of the Father. In fact, it was, he, the Father's words are, came twice at the Jordan River when John was baptizing. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Christ was precious in the sight of the Father. Jesus did all to please the Father. And he was precious to him. His blood was precious, we're told in 1 Peter 1.19, and it was shed for us. And again, we need to ask ourselves the question, beloved, how precious is the Lord Jesus to us? If he was precious to the Father, he should be precious to us. Psalm 72 and verse 14 tells us that the blood of his saints is precious in his sight. And indeed, in Psalm 116 and verse 15, it tells us that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Is he as precious to us as we are to him? You need to ask yourself that question. Is he that precious to us when we think about how precious we are to him? 
then let us live our lives accordingly and declare his preciousness and that of his blood to all who would hear. <clears throat> so not only is he, as it was, a living stone, but Peter refers to us believers as living stones. Christ lives and so do we in him. Every stone in the spiritual house that God is building is made alive by the Holy Spirit and is indwelt by him. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Know you not that you are, speaking to Christians here, you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. That was 1 Corinthians 3.16. You might also want to see uh, 1 Corinthians 6.19, the same thought. In the Old Testament, God appeared between the cherubim above the mercy seat in the temple. Now he dwells in the spiritual temple of the body of Christ and as the priest then offered up sacrifices to the, for the blood of the beast, of the beast, so now we offer up to him spiritual sacrifices via the power of the Spirit working through us. What are those spiritual sacrifices? Well, we offer our bodies for his service, Romans 12.1. We offer our money and our goods for his use and to bless others. That's from Philippians chapter 4 and verse 18 and Hebrews 13.16. We also offer up to him our prayers, Revelation 8.3, and our praise, Hebrews 13.15. Psalm 141 and verse 2 says, Let my prayer be set before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. We note here at the end of verse 5, it says that all we do as living stones and holy priests is acceptable to God. Only, though, only acceptable via the intercessory work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So be sure, beloved, that you never think of having a right relationship with God outside of Christ or apart from Christ. Paul stated pretty clearly in Colossians 3.17, he said, And whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Do all things as unto him. Lastly, let's look at the last few verses here, which are found in verses 6 through 8, and we'll, talk, we'll call this the Scripture Speaks. The Scripture Speaks. Now Peter, as all believers should, based his exhortation on Scripture. In this case, three Old Testament passages. And this is really important. So many people, as us elders have talked about, so many people want to write off the Old Testament or think of it as insignificant. And yet, you have to think, if you're thinking at all, if you're using any kind of logic, who did Peter, who did Paul, who did Christ quote when we hear all the records in the New Testament? Who are they quoting? They're quoting the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't completed yet. So all that you hear them say, all that the apostles and Christ say in the New Testament when they quote an Old Testament passage, that's all they had was the Old Testament. So there's a value there. Obviously, when you look at that, that they were quoting it, that means we should value it as well. And it's important we see that. So Peter is quoting three Old Testament passages here. In essence, like any good preacher, he lets the word of God speak for itself. And that's important. Okay, let's read verses 6 through 8. Therefore, and here we are again. Okay, remember what did he say? That we're part, we're a spiritual priesthood, we're to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means put to shame. There's a definitive statement there. If you, if you are believing on this one, then you will not be put to shame. Verse 7, Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So as we mentioned before, Peter seems to have this favorite um, quotation that he loves, a quote from Isaiah. 
and all the scripture quotations. And here, two out of the three verses he quotes are from the book of Isaiah. First, he quotes from Isaiah 28, and verse 16. This is an obvious messianic passage here that points to our Lord and Savior as the chief cornerstone of God's spiritual temple, which is, of course, the church. Next, Peter quotes from Psalm 118 and verse 22. Jesus is the stone which the builders rejected. The Jews, in particular the rulers, rejected Christ as Messiah, but God showed how precious he is by making him the capstone or the head of the corner, as it's called. In Ephesians 2.20, it says, We are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Our faith is built upon the written word of God and the living word of God, upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We note again Peter's use of the word precious here in verses 6 and 7. Jesus, our Lord, is elect and precious to the Father, and for those who believe, he is also precious as well. But to some, he is what? He's a stumbling stone. There's a contrast there. We shouldn't take it lightly that except for the grace of God, we too would have stumbled over Christ, literally. We would have stumbled over him in the sense of that we wouldn't have believed him, we would have gone on perhaps mocking him or would have been indifferent to him. Uh, we would, rather than trusted him as our Lord and Savior, we would have been lost forever. But So there's the importance of seeing he is both a blessing, he is precious to those who believe, but he is a stumbling block to people who don't believe. Instead of being part of his spiritual house, you and I, could have been crushed by this cornerstone, as we're told in Luke chapter 20 and verse 18. Allow me to read you a portion of a commentary by Robert Layton, a great Puritan, on these verses. Let me read you just a, a paragraph from this book, uh, which he's comment, commentating on First uh, Peter chapter 2. Consider it your happiness. Consider it your happiness to form part of this building. He's speaking of the church here, us being a building blocks are spiritual stones, precious stones. Consider your happiness to form part of this building. Consider the empty nature of other comforts and privileges. Happy indeed are those God chooses to be living stones in this spiritual house or temple. Even though they're hammered and hewn in order to be polished for it through afflictions and the inner work of mortification and repentance, it is worth enduring everything in order to be made suitable for this building. Such people are happier than all others even though they are not laden with honors, kingdoms, or wealth, for all other buildings and all the parts of them will be demolished and will come to nothing from the foundation to the coping stone. All your houses, both cottages and palaces, the elements will destroy by fire, 2 Peter 3.10. But this spiritual building will grow up in heaven. When it has been perfected, it will abide forever in beauty and glory, and it will be found nothing impure and no unclean people. Quote, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 21 and verse 27. Never make light of what Christ has done for you or what your inheritance is in him, and never set your heart on temporal things, no matter how solid and lasting they may seem, and rejoice that you are part of this spiritual building if you're in Christ. You're part of this, this spiritual temple that is being built up. Never be ashamed to be a part of it. If we believe in him, as verse 6 tells us, we will never be put to shame, which is Isaiah 50, verse 7. But to those who reject him, woe unto them. They stumble, and great is their fall. And it should not at all surprise us that so many fall over Christ rather than trust in him, for man in this natural condition, which we know, is spiritual deadness, and therefore they see no value in a Savior. In fact, if you recall, shortly after Christ's birth, 
When Simeon and Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus were meeting there in the, in the temple precincts, he predicted such things. He said in Luke 2.34, And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. He is set for a fall, a stumbling stone, and a rising for those who believe in him. There's the contrast. Verse 8 of our text is actually taken directly from Isaiah 8, verse 14. In fact, Paul uses the same reference in Romans chapter 9, verse 32. And isn't it amazing that people would stumble over and be offended by the meek and mild Jesus who came to give himself to redeem sinful men? People would stumble over him. Yet we know it is a reality, and it's ever been since he came to earth. This shows the power of sin on the one hand, and the blindness of of men's eyes to the way, the truth, and the life, as we're told in John 14, 6. We also see at the end of verse 8 a solemn statement. This is important. We see that, again, our eyes need to focus not just on the broadness of the text, but also the particulars of the text. Look for the if-then statements. Look for other phrases, therefore, wherefore. But look for these also statements which measure out for us, which remind us of the sovereignty of God in judging sinful men. They stumble over Jesus, they don't find him precious, but they despise him because they, they think themselves not deserving of God's wrath. They think they shouldn't get punished, but they reject the word of God because they are not his. He tells them of their sin, we point them to Christ, and that they, they, that he can, they can be redeemed, and yet they reject it because they confirm the just, just righteousness of God. As though Peter says here in verse 8, they were destined for stumbling. Yet God in his mercy gave them the opportunity. He sent the gospel abroad. He gave them that message of salvation and to believe in Christ, except for the merciful intervening of God, which is what is portrayed here. In choosing us, we would all likewise perish. We would all likewise perish. Those are very solemn words. Those are kind of scary words, really. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Again, except for the grace of God, you and I would have been appointed to that. And John MacArthur put it this way. It's important we keep things in the right perspective. These were not appointed by God to disobedience and unbelief. Rather, they were appointed to doom because of their disobedience and unbelief. Let me read that again. They were not appointed by God to disobedience and unbelief. In other words, God didn't make them sin. God didn't make them unbelief. Rather, they were appointed to doom because of their disobedience and unbelief. They, like anyone else in the world, is given the same opportunity to reply to the gospel message. Only those who reply whom God has chosen to save, because not because they deserved it, because he desired to save them. And that's the amazing truth. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 and verses 14 through 16. As we come towards the end here of our study. Romans 9, 14 through 16. And this is important that we don't question God, we don't argue with God, we don't try and bring God down to our standards in any way, that we accept his will and his providence in doing all things. Verse 14 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not, or in some texts might say God forbid, although that word theos is not there. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have, whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whoever I will have compassion so then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's all of God. It's all of his grace, all according to his will. He'll have compassion on whoever he'll have compassion. He'll have mercy on whoever he'll have mercy.
It's difficult. I mean, let's be honest. It's difficult for us as human beings to grasp the fact from a human perspective. Yet, it's the clear teaching of Scripture that Peter is teaching here and will continue to teach that all men are lost in sin, disobedient to the Word of God, and rejectors of the Son of God unless God chose them by His Spirit, awakens them by His Spirit, and convicts them of sin and brings them to repentance. It's all of God. We know that. Sometimes we forget that because we want to kind of give ourselves some credence here, some value, some ability to make a decision. But if you understand the Scriptures, which we all should here, I would think, by now, but we should understand the Scriptures that we're all so lost in sin, we would not make a choice, we would not desire God, we would not come unless the Spirit of God quickens us. And he will only quicken those whom Christ died for. He calls all whom he has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and they will come. They will come. All the rest, like those outside of the ark in Noah's time, Noah was there preaching for how many years? Quite a long time, hundreds of years, right, preaching? And yet, how many people came to the ark and said, let us in? None. None. That's a shame to think of that, but that's, again, demonstrates the fallenness of man and the mercy of God. Did Noah and his, and his wife and his sons and their wives, were they holy and perfect and therefore deserving? No, they're objects of God's mercy and grace. Noah was a righteous man, but he was not perfectly righteous. He was not Christ. He was not sinless. Yet God chose to save him and let the rest of the world perish. We can only bow before him and thank him for his mercy towards us and rejoice, beloved, that you and I, if we're in Christ, we're built upon the chief cornerstone that will never crumble. It will last forever. That is living. We're living in him and he in us. We are secure that we are part of that building if we're in Christ. That's a great hope. Let's pray.